Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter 7 as we continue our study through the book of Mark. Mark chapter 7, and our text this morning will be verses 24 to 30. Mark writes, starting in verse 24. Jesus got up and went away from the region of Tyre, and when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we tackle our passage this morning. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And that it can work. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would again illuminate your word. That you would speak to us from your word. And that nothing that is heard this morning will not be accurate and true, but will be drawn from your word. I pray that you would give us hearts to, and ears to hear. That you would make us be willing to obedient to the things that we must correct. I pray that we would leave encouraged. And above all, I pray again that we would get a glimpse of Jesus Christ here this morning. So I pray that you would again be glorified this morning through the preaching of your word and that your Holy Spirit will again come forth in power amongst us in your name. Amen. If you were to go and ask people why God should let them get into heaven, you would probably hear several replies like this. God should let me into heaven because I am better than the guy beside me, right? I'm better than that guy. You might hear, well, God should let me into heaven because after all, my good outweighs my bad. I have some bad days. I do some bad things. But you know what? I do a lot of good things. I think I'm, I'm good enough to get there. Some people might say, I should get into heaven because after all, I was born into a Christian family. I should be able to go after all. I'm born in a Christian family. I've got to be a Christian. God should let me in. Some others might say, well, you know what? I was born not only into a good family, but I, I go to church. After all, and I go to a good church. I go to a Baptist church. The cream of the crop, right? So God should let me in because after all, I go to church. 
And so there will be all of these claims as to why God should let you in. Why are you right with God? Why are you able to be in his presence? Why are you able to go to heaven? Why should he be pleased with you? And you'll give all of these excuses, all of these reasons. After all, I'm good enough for God. After all, I was born in a position that puts me in a place where I'm good with God. You might be surprised, but this is really nothing new. This isn't something that we invented this century. This isn't even something that we invented in this last thousand years. This has been the problem of mankind from the very beginning, believing that they would be good enough for God. And their default position is to find something either intrinsically about themselves or something about what they do in order to make themselves pleasing to God. And in fact, this is what exactly the Jewish nation fell into was the same problem. After all, they were God's chosen people. God had given them the covenants. They were in, right? They had God's favor. All they needed to do now was to keep the law. And if they could just keep those ceremonies in the law, then they would be good enough for God. And after all, they were better than other people. And the gospel was for them because they were the Jews and they were the chosen people. And they were, they were the ones that got to keep God to themselves. And so they thought that they were in with God. They thought they were good enough for God. And in fact, that's why Paul said in Romans, not knowing about God's righteousness... And going about to establish their own righteousness, they refused to submit themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, they thought they were better than they were. They thought they were more righteous. They thought they were good. And they thought God was less righteous than he was. So they didn't need any more righteousness. And that's why they refused Christ. Because when Christ came and preached repentance for the forgiveness of sin and offered them the kingdom of God, they said, we don't need that. In fact, that's offensive. What would we need that for? We're already in. We're already good. And we, don't, we want to keep it, and we don't want to give it to anybody else after it, it all. We, it's us. It's us and no more. But it seems, again, that they misunderstood the Old Testament. They under, well, under, misunderstood what God was doing. Because when God called Abraham, who they all traced their origin to... Our father Abraham, when God called Abraham, he told him that he would make him a blessing to all nations. Now, that's kind of a broad category, but Paul tells us that ultimately in the New Testament that he fills that out and he says, listen, that's the gospel. The offer of the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And in fact, what it says, if we continue in Genesis to Genesis 15, is that Abraham himself, it says, he believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham's salvation didn't come because God called him out of Ur of Chaldees. His salvation wasn't because he got circumcised because he hadn't been circumcised yet. His salvation came because what made him right with God was his faith. And the Jews, when they received the Mosaic law, should have understood that the law was not meant there to make them, to give them salvation and make them a way to be, so they could work themselves into righteousness with God. It was there to demonstrate their sin. 
And they should have understood when Deuteronomy talked about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, it was, this was not about ceremonies. They should have understood that the commandment number 10, you couldn't keep. That's not one you can measure. Thou shalt not covet. How do you measure that? Right? You're pretty sure when you murder somebody, but how do you measure that one? It's internal. And so they had misunderstood what God had wanted for them to be right with him. But God was not interested in all of their efforts. He wasn't interested in what they thought of themselves. He was interested in what they believed. He was interested if they had faith in him. And they missed it all. And this morning, our text is going to deal with exactly that issue. Faith. Faith. We're going to see a woman here who demonstrates true faith. And we're going to find out that an outsider becomes an insider because she is what? She comes to Christ in what? Faith. She's not depending on any of the outward circumstances. She's not depending on any self effort she's not depending on her birth she's depending on her faith in Christ and so this morning as we come to our text we're really going to see a few qualities of faith that Christ is end up going to call great faith and we're going to see a woman who demonstrates faith and ultimately is in right standing with God instead of being unclean like the Jews were so paranoid about she is going to prove herself to be clean and in right standing with God. And so this morning, we should go away understanding that salvation comes through faith and that we live a life towards God in faith. And so this morning, as we come to our passage, it starts with simply with this, with the background. It says, Jesus got up and went away from the region of Tyre, and he enter, had entered a house, when he had entered a house. And so we remember this. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's come across, and he has now dealt with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are concerned that the disciples are, are running around eating food without their hands washed. Because after all, their traditions have told them, the traditions of the elders have told them, you have to wash your hands to be clean or ceremonial clean when you eat your food. Just in case you touched a dead body or, some, or a Gentile or something unclean while you were in the marketplace. And Jesus says, here's the problem. Your problem is you're so worried about outside circumstances, but your heart is far from me. You're not worshiping me. You're only wanting to keep your traditions. And then he goes on to tell them, look, you put your traditions and you replace scripture. You just add all of these conditions on top of it as if it's pleasing to me. And anything you add on top of scripture that you do to please God is what? An abomination to him. He's not interested in it. It doesn't please him. And then he says, not only do you take your traditions, but you put them over top of Scripture. And, you, and they become your authority rather than Scripture. And you think that you're the clean ones. You're, you think you're the ones who are responsible, who are pleasing to God and in right standing with him. And it's no accident that now Mark turns to this woman and her faith. 
Because in contrast to those Jews, we're going to see a woman who has faith in Christ. We're going to see a woman here who is going to ultimately be clean before God because she has faith in him rather than leaning on traditions and birth. And so Jesus is coming away from that conflict with them and he is headed to a Gentile area. Tyre and Sidon, those are those famous cities in the Old Testament. Those are the te- th- these are the cities that are on the west coast, on the Medera- Mediterranean, on the, uh, up north, about 50 miles from Capernaum. They are the cities that Ezekiel prophesied that, Nebu- that Babylon would come and that would destroy the cities. And that's exactly what happened. He came and he conquered. Only thing, Tyre had a, an island a mile out in the sea and they all ran out to the island and they, they hid out there. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't have any, uh, what's the word, navy. So he couldn't go out and get them. And so he left that part and he destroyed the rest of the city. And people said, oh, look at that. Ezekiel got it wrong. Remember that? We, we, I think we took that in FOF. He got it all wrong. Then 250 years later, along comes a little angry man named Alexander, right? He tells them, he attacks them. They, they resist him. They run to the island. And what, does Nebuchadne- what does he do? What does Alexander do? Builds a bridge. He gets angry, builds a bridge destroys the whole city just like Ezekiel said he would. And all of the prophecies come true. And now there are fishing nets that hang out there. And so at Christ's time, this is really a fishing town now. And so Christ has gone to this place where there are Gentiles. And in essence... He is escaping from all of the pressure and all of the persecution that he's receiving from the Pharisees. Their hostility is growing. The danger is growing. And so what better place to go to get away from them than to go to an unclean Gentile place where the Pharisees don't want to go because they're in fear of being defiled. And so he heads off and he heads for a break. And it's clear that he's not going there for ministry, right? He's going into a house and he doesn't want anybody to know him. And if we just flip the page back to chapter 6, we see that the disciples have just come, had just come back from their internship where they had been sent out two by two and reported to Christ. Christ tried to take them for a vacation to get them some relaxation. And guess what? The crowd followed the five feeding of the 5,000. They still haven't had their break. And so it's more than likely that Christ is still trying to get, the, get, get caught up with his disciples to give them rest. Here's a time where he can now spend quality time. He can teach them. He can be with them, spend time with them, refresh them. Christ himself probably needing the same. But it it says, yet he could not escape their notice. Christ's fame had spread. It had spread all across that whole region. He was a superstar, as it were. He had basically virtually wiped out disease in Galilee. He was casting out demons. It would be like 
It's, it would be just like it says, and hearing of her, this woman comes. In essence, it would be like having Sidney Crosby move in next door to you. Can you imagine how the rumor mill would start, right? Hey, I think I saw Sidney Crosby taking his hockey equipment out. I think I saw him moving next door. Neighbor to neighbor to neighbor, pretty soon, what? The whole neighborhood knows, everybody knows, Sidney Crosby's in town. And here's Jesus Christ, the great teacher, the great healer. And he's in town. And they recognize him, right? We remember back in, in Mark chapter 3, verse 8, just, just before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, there's a big crowd that comes, and the crowd is made up of those from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. They are included in the people who come to see Christ after he has healed the man with the withered hand. And so these people have seen Christ. They have heard Christ. They know who he is. Many of them have personally set their eyes upon him. So when he sneaks into town, they know who he is. And for Christ, that means his privacy and his time alone is going to be shattered almost immediately. And what I want you to notice as we go into this next verse is the right direct the rightly directed faith of this woman but after hearing of him a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately and came and fell at his feet now she heard of him she knew him and here's her dilemma her little girl this is a term of endearment more than a t- than a a term of age But you get the impression that maybe this is her only little daughter. This is her only daughter. And here's her problem. Her daughter is demon-possessed. She has an unclean spirit in her, a defiling spirit. It has taken control of her. Now imagine how you would feel as a parent. You would understand the desperation. You would understand that you would do anything to help your child. Now, verse 26 gives us more information about her. Now, the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. So here's a description of this woman. Now, look at her coming to Christ. First of all, we recognize that she was a woman. This is bold for a woman to do. She is is seen as less than in society, right? She's not male, she's female. She's really disposable to some degree. And here she is, and she's approaching a great teacher, a rabbi. And women simply were not to speak to rabbis. Rabbis simply did not speak to them. They were below them. They were seen as temptress. They simply were not to approach a rabbi. In fact... The Pharisees had a sect called the Bruised and Bleeding Pharisees. Pretty catchy name, don't you think? I'm thinking we should maybe call ourselves that, the Bruised and Bleeding Baptists. (laughs) But they were so legalistic, and they were so trying to guard moral purity, that when they saw a woman, they would cover their eyes. And of course, if you're walking through the market or you're walking through any place, you're going to run into things. And so they had bruised and cut legs and shins because they ran into stuff because they were guarding their purity. 
And they used to take pride in that because after all, they were, you know, the more cuts, more bruises, the more they were actually trying to stay pure. And so you understand the, their view of women. And so here is this woman approaching Christ. Not only is she a woman, but she's from the Syrophoenician area. She's a Gentile. Worse than that, Matthew tells us she's a Canaanite. Those were the people that the Jews were supposed to eradicate and kill. And here is this woman. She is a dirty Gentile. She is a dog. She is, she is the low of the low. She is unclean. And she approaches him. How awful. Not only that, we talked about her daughter being demon-possessed. She's probably unclean from the demon as well. How did she let that happen? Did she touch her daughter? And so here she comes. Remembering she's a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. And yet she comes in spite of all of those social objections, in spite of the fact that she is a pagan. She is probably worshiping foreign gods and all the idols. But she recognizes this much. In spite of all of that information, that her only hope, her only place that she has a chance to have her child delivered is to come to Jesus Christ. She's, maybe she's already tried going to sacrificing to her idols. Maybe she's already tried the priests and the priestess. Maybe she's tried all of that already, but she realizes now the only hope for her daughter is to place her faith in Jesus Christ. It is more important that you place your faith in the right object than it is to the degree of how much faith you actually have. It doesn't matter how much faith you place in something. If it's not worth it, what does it matter? Imagine if you went and did that bungee jumping. And you got up top there, and they strapped those things around your ankles. And you stand up there, and you say, I'm scared. And you should be. I'm scared. And you say, but I have a little bit of, I think it might hold me. And you might even be so scared that you say, you know what, you guys are going to have to push me because I, I can't jump, right? But you jump and you bounce on, the, on that cord. You don't hit the ground and you're safe. That's great. That's a little faith. But you had it in the right object. The bungee cord held. Now climb back up there and say, you know what? I believe I'm going to be okay. Take that off of me. I'm just going to jump. I just believe firmly that I'll have a soft landing. Okay? That's foolishness. That's foolishness. But how often do we do that when it comes to us or to salvation? People come to, they think that they can be right with God, and so they put their trust and belief. I believe. I just believe that God will take me. And I believe I have faith in faith. That's foolishness. I have faith that if, if I pray to prayer, that I'm in. 
Now, it may be that you are saved at the time you prayed a prayer. That may be true. But if your faith is in the prayer, then your faith is not in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his promise to, to receive all who believe. Your faith needs not to be in that in that profession, it needs to be in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You must believe his word that when he says, all who believe in me, I will receive. So your faith has to be in him and in his word and in his character, not in something else. Not believing because you believe because you're in the right family or in the right church or because you do good works. It must be in Jesus Christ. Now you might say, <laughs> but I'm already a believer. This has nothing to do with me. Thanks. Thanks, Pastor. That was great. But how often do we in our Christian life do the exact same thing? Lord, I'm in trouble. I'm in huge trouble. You know what? I'll phone the pastor. I'll phone the elders. And you put your trust, what? Not in Jesus Christ, but in someone else to help you. You get sick, and then you say, what? The doctors will help me. How often do problems come into our lives, and we start to put our trust not in Jesus Christ and his power, but we start to put it in other things. Our own, our own skills, our own abilities, whatever it is. Instead of recognizing that our only hope is Jesus Christ. Our faith needs to be in him. He's the one who can fix our problems. Not ourselves, not anybody else. So we see a, a faith that is rightly directed. A faith that is rightly directed. The next thing that we're going to see is not only a rightly directed faith, but a persistent faith, a persistent faith. Verse 26. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She kept asking. The idea is she kept at it. She kept asking right in fact Matthew records much more details here first of all Jesus just ignored her kind of rude don't you think but he had a point he ignored her in fact she kept on asking to the point where the disciples according to Matthew told Jesus to send her away this woman is troublesome she keeps bothering me bothering us she's loud send her away and she could have quit. She could have stopped. Matthew records three requests. She may have actually asked more than that. But she is persistent. She keeps on asking. She didn't stop. She didn't say, I've asked once, now I'm going to sit back and wait. I'm not going to just hope that maybe it happens. She kept on asking. There's a persistence in her faith. She, she recognizes her need. She recognizes that she needs to come to Christ. And she recognizes that it must come from him. And so she is persistent in her asking. Now, she's not obnoxious. 
She's not over the top here. But there is a persistent recognition that the only place that she can get help is from him. And so she continues to ask him. Her need is not met, so she continues to ask. So it is with those who want to come to salvation in Christ. He says, seek, right? You must come. You must. The, the way is narrow, right? Few will find it. Jesus is teaching us that there are few that will find it and that we must what? Be persistent in looking for it. And we too, as believers, as we come, we must be persistent as we ask. Not obnoxious, not demanding, but continually coming to him and asking. Remember, James says, you have not because you what? You ask not. You ask not. And it's okay to continually come back and, and plead with him to answer our requests. It's okay for us to continually come before the throne. God does not get tired of hearing our requests. And sometimes he's actually using the delay in our lives to drive us to himself and to recognize how dependent we are on him. And so we must be those who are persistent in our faith to continually bringing our needs to him, continually dependent on him. It's so easy to give up. It's so easy to grow tired. But sometimes God says, not now but I will in the future. And he wants us to continue to persist, believing that he can do what he promises. Well, her faith was rightly directed. Her faith was persistent. And now we see that her faith is humble. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. Now here's Christ's first response, and maybe this is, and even this could be part of her persistence because she continues in spite of what Christ says. But here now Christ after Matthew's silence, now he responds, and maybe the silence would have been nicer. When you first hear this, for he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now she immediately knew what Jesus was saying. This was a common phrase that the Jews used. They said, we are the children of God, and you are dogs. That's who you are. You are dogs. That's the Gentiles. She immediately knew what he was saying. Now, the word he used here is not the typical word used in that phrase. The typical word, was a do word for dog was used of curs or wild dogs. They were vicious. They were hungry. They were diseased. Sometimes they were flea-bitten. Sometimes they had rabies. They were dangerous. They were roamed in packs. They would often attack people because they weren't afraid of them. And so they were a menace. But here he uses the term for little dog. It's a little dog that you have in the house. 
And so Jesus, in some ways, is softening this, and he says, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And Jesus is saying, just like at the house, when you feed the children, you don't take the food off their plate and throw it to the dog and let the children starve. You let the children eat. You don't take the food and throw it to the dogs. And he's saying in the same way, Jesus is saying, listen, I came as the Jewish Messiah. I came as the one to the Jews to offer them salvation, to offer them the kingdom. I have come to, be, to do ministry to them. Remember when he sent out his disciples in Mark chapter 3? He sent them to where? I mean, chapter 6. Where did he send them? To the household of Israel. God was, Jesus was giving them every chance to repent and to turn. And Jesus is saying, my primary job, my primary goal is to the Jewish people. That's why John said he came unto his own and his own received him not. These were the ones that Christ came to. Paul said he came first to the Jew, then to the Greek. So Jesus is saying, listen, I have priority of ministry. I am not here to help the Gentiles. I'm not here for the blessings of the Messiah to come to the Gentiles yet. Now at this point, she could have given up. She could have just said, well, that's it. That's the Lord's will. The Lord's spoken. That's it. We're done. Let's go home. But she didn't. And I want you to look at not only the persistence of this reply, but the humility of it. And pretty, pretty good insight. Now listen to this. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. Remarkable insight. The first thing she says is what? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Right? I recognize that you are master. I recognize that you are Lord. I recognize that you have the right to do as you want. I recognize that I deserve nothing, that you are the right to rule. You have the right to run this as you choose. She doesn't defend herself. She doesn't say, are you calling me a dog? Oh, I'm going home. How dare you call me names? She simply acknowledges what the Lord says about her. She recognizes she's exactly who Jesus said she was. She's a Gentile dog. But listen to, listen to her insight. Listen to her insight. But even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. In other words, when the children are eating, what do they normally do? If they're anything like mine, there's food going everywhere. Right? Sorry, boys. There's food that falls off the table... And the dogs eat the crumbs. And she's saying, listen, Lord, I know you didn't come. I know I don't deserve your help. I know that I'm a dirty Gentile. I know that, I don't, that I'm exactly who you say I am. I'm not as deserving as the Jews. But guess what? The messianic blessing is big. And there's enough blessings going on. And there's enough uh, a fruit that is coming forth that there's, there's got to be crumbs falling off the table. I'm not asking for the children's food. They're going to eat till they're, f they're full, but there's still enough blessings to just flow over the edges. And she's saying, I don't want their food. I just want a crumb. I just want a crumb. That's all I need from you is just a crumb. 
And here is this woman in desperation saying to her, Lord, I see what you're saying and I acknowledge exactly who I am. I acknowledge exactly the situation. But I'm begging you, just allow the crumbs to fall off the table. I'll just take a crumb. And so as she comes to Christ, as she comes in faith, she comes in a humble faith. She doesn't say, listen, do you know who I am? She's not like the Pharisees who stood up and and were self-righteous and self-reliant and called Christ's names and ridiculed him. She says, I'm exactly who you say I am. Please, I I beg you, I am on your mercy. I humble myself before you. Can you not just give me a crumb? And anyone who comes to salvation must come to this point. You must recognize that you know you earn, you deserve nothing from him. You must recognize what God calls you in scripture. God calls you an enemy. He calls you as a sinner. He calls you as someone who is opposed to him, who is without hope, who cannot save themselves in need of his mercy. And he says, we must come to him with exactly this humble attitude, not self-reliant, not self-righteous, nothing. Nothing to on our own. Simply humbling ourselves before him and say, I'm exactly who you say you are, but just a crumb of your mercy can change that. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. but would you give it? We also as believers need to come to Christ with that same humility when we come and ask him for things, right? Lord, I need a new car, right? What's, what, what do we hear so often? Lord, go down to that parking lot Look at that Cadillac or BMW. Claim it. Lord, that's mine. Give it to me. Right? Is that the way a believer comes to to God and asks him for things? Are we to stand up and demand whatever we want? Lord, give it to me. I demand my health. If you love me, you'll give me this. You want me wealthy. You want to give me whatever I want, and you need to give it to me because I'm your child. No. We have to respond just like this woman. Lord, give me a crumb. I don't deserve it. I deserve no more of your grace and your goodness but can you give me a crumb we must come with that same humility that same lack of pride that same lack of self-reliance and so this morning we see her faith then we see this morning the reward of that faith look at Christ's response And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. Now Matthew records that he said, because of your great faith. So the idea here is that Christ is rewarding her because she made a witty statement. 
It's not as if somehow she, she made, was so witty and so clever that, that it overwhelmed Christ and he gave her what he wanted. Christ is responding directly to this woman's deep faith. And he says to her, because of that, because of that, he says, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And I want you to know that if you come to Jesus Christ, if you come to rightly directed, humbled, and persistently, that God responds to that kind of faith. He will always respond to those who come to him for salvation if you come humbly, persistently, and to Jesus Christ. And for us as believers, he will respond in his grace and his kindness to us. He may not respond in the way that we want. We may not get the things that we desire, but he will always respond and it pleases him when we come this way. It says in verse 30, and going back to her home, she found the child lying in the bed, the demon having left. Here's another actual remarkable step of faith she took Jesus at his word Jesus said it I believe it that settles it and that's what she did she simply went home he said it's done right and she went home and there she found her child lying on the bed the idea is, is that the child is just laying there peacefully tranquilly after, after demon possession all of the upheaval the child is laying there and the demon is gone literally gone forever not coming back. Totally gone. And so her faith is rewarded. Christ answers her request. Again, as we look at this story, we are again reminded that to be pleasing to God, it is not a matter of tradition. It's not a matter of outside circumstances. It's not a matter of where we were born. It has everything to do with faith in Jesus Christ. And it's so clear as this story follows the story of Christ and his dealings with the Pharisees that Christ is making something very clear. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what race you're from. It doesn't matter what efforts you have put out. The thing, contrary to the Jews who thought they would be clean because they were Jewish and because they kept their ceremonies, the thing that makes you right with God, the thing that makes you clean with God is faith in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we need to look and say, are we people of faith? Have we ever come to Jesus Christ? Do we recognize that we might need to come to him for salvation, that we might for the first time need to recognize that he is the only way, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved, that you must come persistently seeking him, and that you must humble yourself, recognize who you are, who he says you are in your desperate need, and if you do, he will accept you. And if you're a believer here today, 
Maybe there are problems in your life. Maybe there are things that are out of whack. Maybe your health is bad. Relationships are bad. Whatever that is. Maybe you have a child that is, is rebelling. Whatever that is. And there are these problems. Recognize that Jesus is the one who can handle them. He's the one who can deal with them. He is the one who will respond to your faith in him. If he can heal Jairus' daughter, if he can cast out demons, if he can heal a man with a withered hand, there is no problem in your life that Jesus Christ cannot deal with. And so this morning, again, look at Jesus. Look at his greatness. Put your faith in him. He is, he is a good God. Love Him. Adore Him. Worship Him. Trust Him. Know Him. Adore Him. Let's close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we again thank You for the example of the Syrophoenician woman. A woman who, in spite of her limited knowledge, in spite of her limited exposure, in spite of her background, made up for it with a deep faith in you. And we thank you that we can be right before you, not because of anything we have done, but because we have put our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to be those who live by faith. Help us to continue to put our faith and our trust in Jesus May we continue to persist in faith and may we come humbly before our God. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving him on the cross that we might know you. May you be glorified in your name. Amen.